So would you turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Lord, I thank you for the rain last night, and I thank you that it replenishes the earth. Lord, as the rain fell, I ask for your Holy Spirit to fall. Lord, that you can see, Lord, it's a, I love spring, Lord, and in, in the, the growth um, that is coming, and I pray that your Spirit will provide growth that is larger than what we see around us. I thank you for living in a country of freedom this morning. It's a big deal. We can gather together with your word in hand without fear of persecution. I thank you for meeting our needs in excess, for providing us places to live that keep us warm and dry. I thank you for your hand of protection. Lord, quite frankly, it's your hand of blessing. I thank you that you hear and answer. I thank you for your word today, described as sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, it's inspired, God-breathed. Lord, your word says that it won't come back void, and so I ask that your word would go forth. Lord, that my words, which are merely words, I really don't have an ability to change anybody, let alone myself included. But your word is truth, and it sets people free. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that is without limit, without limit today. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the indescribable gift under no other name is salvation found. I pray if there are people within the earshot in this room that don't know you, that need to come to you or return to you, that you would call and we repent, that you would enable us to come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those of us that say we believe that we'd believe today, that you'd help us with our unbelief. I pray for a hedge of protection around our minds and our bodies this morning from the evil one. Lord, that your word would go forth, that your Holy Spirit would stir. You know the details and needs of every soul. Lord, that you continue the process of changing us from the inside out, that you alone would be glorified. In Jesus' name. 1 John chapter 1. So I've been fairly vocal uh, over the past three years that I have a tumultuous relationship with this term pastor. Uh, I'm not a big fan of being introduced as or being called Pastor Gary. I don't uh, take the role or responsibility lightly. Uh, I'm not embarrassed by it or ashamed by it. But um, what I've realized is that there is a stigma with the word pastor especially when you put it in front of somebody's name. It creates sort of expectations and perceptions of what people think you should or ought to be. And it impacts my relationships inside and outside of the church. And so I'm a little bit conflicted when somebody says, Hey, Pastor Gary. Now there are some of you who have said, I don't care what you think and what you feel, I'm calling you Pastor Gary. That's fine. I'm not going to challenge you on it. I'm just telling you how I feel. The other sort of component is pastor elder, according to scripture, same office, same responsibility. We don't go around saying, hey, Elder Micah, Elder Bob, or Elder Dave. We don't take other gifts 
and put them on the beginning of people's names. Administrator Bob. Healer Mike. So why, Pastor? Why elevate that to where it becomes something that needs to be said in front of my name? However, there are some cool things with being a pastor. One of them is the privilege it is to officiate a wedding ceremony. And I have had the privilege <clears throat> over the years to officiate wedding ceremonies. And most of those that I've done have been kids that I've worked with back in the day when I was a youth pastor. And normally, uh, when somebody asks me <clears throat> to officiate a wedding, the next sort of thought process is, what do we do about marriage counseling? And I've always been sort of not sure how to approach that. Pre-marriage counseling. Because while I feel, uh, or I think it's important for the couple about to get married to have some dialogue about what it's like to be married, it's almost impossible to describe what it's like to be married until you're married. It's important to get the couple together and talk about who they are and what they've experienced and what they've viewed um, as marriage and what they're bringing to the table. But what my approach is, when I um, am asked to officiate a wedding, as far as pre-marriage counseling goes, is for Debbie and I to start building a more solid relationship with that couple. And so I don't call them into the office. Debbie and I will go out to eat. We'll have them over our house. We'll get to know them. Because while pre-marriage counseling has some value to it, what happens after you say I do is more important than what happens before you say I do. Because if there's two believers, a man and a woman, who are coming together to get married, and that marriage is going to be a reflection of who God is, you're going to need some people to come alongside you along the way. Because it's not an easy road. I believe the same thing is true with the relationship with God. I believe that you and I were created in the image of the living God. And you were created to have a relationship with him that he would be glorified. That is why we breathe today. That relationship is only possible with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. You see, when you were born, you were born into sin. The sin creates a chasm. Not just a, a chasm between us and God. And while the purpose is to have a relationship with him, sin gets in the way. There's nothing you can do on a human level to fill, to cross that chasm. Impossible. So God had to provide his son Jesus to overcome the penalty and power of sin that his blood covers the cavern. It fills the cavern. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Nothing you can do. That call is not just to seal a ticket to put in our pocket for eternity. The call is to walk with the living God. It's significant. And if you are going to go this road, the road that the Bible defines as a road that few, startling word, few find 
you will need people along the way because the call is a big one. And I want to look at the call through 1 John chapter 1. The author of 1 John is a guy by the name of John. The Bible is God-breathed. God chose human authors that he would breathe his word through them. It's every word is flawless. It's perfect. This man, John, is said to be the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. The same John who penned the words in Revelation. Can you imagine? The same John that was on the inner circle with Jesus, that is referred to as the one that Jesus loved. And he has some words for us today. And it begins in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Can you imagine this? This man, he's flesh and blood like you and I. He says, I've seen the word of life, Jesus, with my own eyes. I have heard his very words with my ears, and my body has touched his. God incarnate, Jesus, the Son of God. I've experienced him, and you know what he's saying? He's real. A couple weeks ago, Debbie and I, Emily and Greg, went on a little bit of a road trip. And to get out of Dodge... Went to Virginia, Alabama, and Florida to see some family and some friends. And when we got to Florida, we stayed in a hotel for a couple nights. And one day I was wanting to go downstairs and wanted to take the elevator. And it's, it's not like in the old day where you can cram people into the elevator. So there's a little bit of a, a line and people standing in this hallway waiting for the elevator. I have a pair of shorts on and a t-shirt. And I'm waiting for the elevator, I have sunglasses on, I'm just standing there minding my business. And there's this mom with a couple boys standing over there, and there's a kid staring at me. And they're awkward, I don't know what I say, I don't... And so I'm just kind of looking away, I don't know what he... And he, he looks at me and he, sa- he approaches me. And he says, you've been to Cooperstown. I was like, what? Like, I don't... He says, your shirt! Your shirt says... Cooperstown. I don't know how many of you know this. Well, you probably know this, but Cooperstown is in New York. And Cooperstown is where they have what's called the Baseball Hall of Fame. But they have something else up there. It's called Cooperstown Dream Park. Now, I had no idea this place existed until my son, it's seven years old, joined the Mount Olive Travel Baseball Team. Cooperstown Dream Park is a place, it's a location, it's an organization that exists to only open during the summer months. And during those summer weeks, each week, 
They have kids that are 12 years old to come and play with 100 other teams in one tournament. Each week out of the summer, it's a different 100 teams and a different tournament. It costs to play in that tournament roughly, it's over 2,000 per player. So if you're gonna take a team to play in Cooperstown, New York, it will cost your team roughly $25,000. When Greg, my son, joined the Mount Olive Travel baseball team, while that was significant and they were there to play and build players and win teams, the pinnacle of the Mount Olive Travel Baseball Association experience was to participate in a tournament in Cooperstown. That meant when you start at seven years old, you're gonna begin the process of that. And part of the process is fundraising. Fundraising so that when you get there, you don't have to pay a dime. Now people who have been to Cooperstown were building this up to be a big deal. I, to be honest with you, was a little bit of a naysayer. What's the big deal? How great could this be? But we stuck along the road. And when he was 12 years old, Greg went to Cooperstown Dream Park. This is the Disney World of baseball. It is almost unbelievable to describe what goes on when you get there. The kids stay in the park, the adults rent houses with the other baseball parents, and they have these tournament games every day. The beginning day is equivalent to the opening day at the Olympics, where the kids march in with uniforms and banners. There's people that parachute out of plane to bring the balls that they're gonna use in. I mean, it is unbelievable how extraordinary this event is. And the games that they play in the fields, and these kids, every time they went to a game, they left their barracks, and they would walk into the, walk along the road with a banner, and there'd be music playing, and you would cheer them in. And before you get there, you create a pin. Every team that goes creates a considerable amount of time and money into creating a pin, and this was our pin. And in between the games, the kids get together and they trade pins. And Greg, if you went into his house and into his room, he would have a bag that's filled with these pins, some that light up and some that spin. And Greg had two of the more valuable pins, and they trade back and forth, and it's an incredible experience if you love baseball. So when this kid said to me, you've been to Cooperstown, I get excited. Oh my gosh, we've been there. So he must have known what Cooperstown was. So I said to him, did you go to Cooperstown? And he said, I was supposed to go, but it was canceled because of COVID. So I didn't know what to say. I was like, oh my gosh, it was so much fun, but I want to build it up because the lead, you know, the continued disappointment. Because you only have one shot. Once you turn 13, you can't go back. There is a clear distinction between myself, who saw it, who felt it, and heard it, to one who only heard about. What John is saying here, I've experienced the word of life in flesh. I've seen it, I've heard it, not just him, but the salvation that comes from him. There are those who've experienced salvation and those who haven't, and there is no other. You either are or are not. And he's saying, I'm proclaiming this to you because I want you to have the same fellowship that I had, that we have. 
What's the evidence? Some may say, well, how do, how do, we, knew, how do we know you've been to Cooperstown? I've got the evidence. I don't just have the experience. Greg's got pins. You go into his room, he's got photos of him playing on a field in Cooperstown. He's got a shadow uh, box with dirt from a field, a bat in there that was all done because of fundraising. What is the evidence of Jesus in our life? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. The evidence of Jesus is light. When we were living up north, we lived in the same house for 18 years. 2,000 square foot, split level home. When you walk in the house, you have an entryway, and you have a basement, and then you walk up a couple stairs, and you have a living area, and then walk up a couple stairs, you have bedrooms, so four floors, so to speak. And when my kids were little, one of the things that we like to do in the winter, you know, it gets dark real early, is we would play hide and seek in the dark. We would shut all the lights out in the house, all of them, and we'd play hide and seek. I don't care if it's your house or not. It's scary in the dark. It was scary. It was, that was part of the fun of playing hide and seek in the dark. It was a little scary. The dark is scary. But for some of us, the light is just as scary. Because the light that Jesus is talking about, part of the light, is to reveal the sin. You see, the revelation of sin reveals that we need a Savior. And the sin is deep, my friends. Maybe not for you, but it's deep here. The light goes on to say, I've got a problem, and it's sin. That my sin has caused pain and confusion. That I've been intentional about leading others into sin. That I'm childish. That I'm selfish and I'm self-seeking. It's embarrassing, and it's egregious. How deep in the spots that still God needs to root out. But God doesn't say, I'm just turning on the light so you can see your sin. What does he say there? I want you to identify your sin so what? So you confess it. And when you confess it, I purify you. And I am faithful and just. And so the light goes on so we can identify our sin and bring it before Jesus who's no longer on the cross. And he says, now you can have life that I'm moving in and through. And that light also helps us identify the call. What now? The cleansing process, the road to sanctification is moving, but what do I do now in the process of you changing me from the inside out? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Oof. Could it be any clearer? You can say all you want. It's easy. The kingdom of God is not a matter of, but a matter of power. You must live as Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? What was he doing here on earth? Go to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant me that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the, uh, the, the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How do we live as Jesus lived? Beginning with the understanding that you and I are here to serve. We are not here to be served, but to serve. What does that look like? What did Jesus do as he was serving? Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to re release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As we serve, we are to preach the good news to the poor. Why? Because it's that good news that frees us. We are all prisoners. How about this? We've all been born prisoners. And so he came to serve, and he says, I got a message. I am the message. I'm the truth. I'm the son of the living God. How did he do it? Did he say, hold on, I'm going to build a building, and I'm going to stand here and wait for people to come in the building, and I'm going to let them know what the truth is. No. He hit the streets. 
He went to the common folk like you and me, the unschooled ordinary men, the women, the unpopular, the unclean. Go to John chapter 1. Verse 35, the next day John was there again with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them, followed and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what, had, what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were standing, while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree, you shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Go to Matthew 4, verse 18. Matthew 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking along beside the sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee. Preparing their nets, Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat, and their father followed them. Go to Matthew chapter 28. You see a pattern here that this, isn't, this is a culture. I don't even know if I should say it's a culture Jesus created, but it's who he was. That this was a relational ministry that he roamed, and while people chased him and crowds build, it seems like at times, if you read the Gospels in chronological order and some speed, there's times it's like Jesus is trying to run from the people, <laughs> the crowds. He cared about the people. He had compassion on them. But this was a relational ministry. Jesus walks among the common people. So he demonstrated it, what discipleship is, but then as he's about to leave, ascend, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, he's got a mission, which we would call the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything, everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you believe that command, that commissioning is relevant for you and me today? And if so, what are we doing about it? Discipleship. 
like a married couple, if you and I are going to go, he built us for community, to be in relationship with one another. Go and make disciples. God has put men and women, boys and girls, people in our web of influence that he wants us to be a light in their life. We are to be intentional. If you believe anything contrary to God's will is sin, if you're not doing this, if we're not doing this, I'd consider it sin because it's contrary to God's will. My question is why, if you're not doing this? Why are we not intentional? I believe that we should be intentional about seeking people out that might be new believers. I believe discipleship begins before we believe. That God has put people in your life that he wants you to be a witness to. That he wants you to be his hands and feet in the process. Do you have, do you intentionally try to build relationships with people in your life, in your web of influence, and even those that may be unpopular, the unclean? And say, God, how do you want me to use, how do you want to use me, serve them, that you'd be glorified? Do you have people in your life that you can come alongside them and bear their burdens and pray for them and encourage them? That's the call. Do you also have people in your life that you will allow them to bear your burdens, to pray for, with, and over you? That they can, when at times, grab you by the scruff of the neck and say you're walking down a dangerous road. It's called discipleship. And it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a believer, this applies. Whether you're 15 or 105. I know how relevant this is, that this is a consistent prayer for Emily and Greg a 16 and an 18-year-old, that God would raise up and provide them another person or two, I know it's not going to be a lot, to come alongside them with my wife and I to help them on this road. If you are a young person living in this culture, it is going to be very difficult to do it alone. And so I pray that God as an act of mercy would provide other people their age or a little older to come alongside. But I also pray that they would do it as well. This is who Jesus was. But he was also, if we're going to walk like Jesus, he prayed. Luke chapter 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Prayer, it's a hot topic. A lot of us battle. How amazing is it that you alone can communicate with the living God? I mean, me, just that alone... I mean, how does that not drive us? That he cares about you. That he doesn't just want to hear from you. He wants to spend time alone with you. He's got something he wants to say to you. I love you. I care for you. I've got a plan for you. Jesus, if Jesus prayed, do you believe? 
You say, I know in church, oh yeah, yeah. Acts chapter 12. We covered this portion of scripture in Bridge last week. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some of those, some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that that pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter as well. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison and handed him over to be guarded by four soldiers and four, so, four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Peter was he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put, your clothes and sand put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, and came to an iron gate leading, in, leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, and he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered them to be executed. Do you believe that? Honestly. I mean, that's amazing. I love the term, there was no small commotion. When God puts himself on display, there's no small commotion. I, I'm fascinated by what we don't know. What does earnestly praying look like? Why were they astonished when Peter showed up? Were they praying for him to be released? Maybe not. I don't know, but they were astonished. It appears they were more comfortable with an angel showing up more over Peter. It's amazing. I don't know exactly what happened there. But what I do know is they invoked the name of the God. He did something that was astonishing. Finally, James chapter 5. If any one of you is in trouble, he should pray. If anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. If any one of you is sick, he should call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful 
ineffective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The Bible couldn't be any clearer. If you are in trouble, pray. Are you in trouble? I am. I battle every day. What's the answer? Pray. The Bible is very clear in 1 John chapter 2. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. <clears throat> it's not an option. It's a reflection of the Holy Spirit doing the work in and through. <clears throat> I had a good friend of mine. When I, was, I worked for youth advocate programs as I closed for eight years, my second year in, a guy came walking through the door and wanted a position at youth advocate programs. This gentleman was a former Latin king who served a considerable amount of time in jail for conspiracy to murder. He became a believer, <clears throat> had a wife, had a daughter, had some time between him and that life, and I hired him. For six years, he worked alongside me. You would not know about his past. He was embarrassed about it, wouldn't talk about it unless I kind of forced the issue where he needed to come alongside other kids and kind of tell them the story of where his sin led him. And at times, he's very laid back. But at times, people kind of come at him a little bit, kind of poke at him to annoy him. And he would say to me at times, Gary, he goes, sometimes people mistake kindness for weakness. And I think the same thing is true for some of us in our view of God, that sometimes we mistake his grace for weakness. You see, here's the truth. Read Revelation. He is, he was, and he is to come. Judgment's coming. Read Revel I just got done reading Revelation. It's scary. I'm going to be honest. It's terrifying. Now, if you're a believer, you're not going to be judged, but we will be held accountable. When God says, I had a job for you. You have a mission. This isn't just about you being good. This is about me putting myself on display in and through. How great is that that the living God wants to use us, that he be glorified? To cleanse us from the inside out and along the way be his hands and feet. It's now or never. Tomorrow may never come. When I look at this, I can't do this. That's exactly where I need to be. Because it drives me back to God going, I don't, what? Just come to me and I'll do the rest. I promise you, because this word is true, that if you go to him, he will do things in and through you to put himself on display like he did to the people in this book. Because that's his desire. Because he loves you and he cares for you. And he's got a purpose for you today. Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and your word would go forth. I have no ability to change myself, let alone somebody else, but I know that you do. And so I thank you for your truth today. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the call and that it's significant. I thank you for that you've been faithful when I've been faithless. I thank you for your mercy and your grace. 
almost unbelievable. That's how good you've been to me and us. Lord, I pray that we would be people who get excited and passionate and convicted about our relationship with you that would drive us to you, that ultimately you'd continue the process of changing us from the inside out, that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name.